Hey guys and gals, just a quick note before we get into the show, we had a little bit of technical difficulty, and so you're going to hear um, not pristine audio quality to say the least. Not terrible, but uh, there are some spots where it's a little rough. Cleaned it up the best I could, so just wanted to warn you before we got into the show, but again, thanks for tuning in. <laughs> Welcome to the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas with your host, Ryan Ray and Josh Shelton. Welcome to the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast. Uh, we appreciate you tuning in to episode three. I'm your host, Josh Shelton, with my friend and co-host, Ryan Ray. Ryan, we got some interesting stuff. Uh, how was your week so far? Good, man. Good. Been busy. Uh, just got back from Houston, and I was telling you before we got on. I went to the APIYP event at Honeywell. Fascinating stuff there. And if you're, if you're in Houston, and I'm not in Houston, as you know. I'm from you know just south of DFW, but I drive down to these events. Uh, a lot of value there. And so if you're in Houston, though, the APIYP is something that you really need to be involved in. And so we will link to that in the show notes. Great organization. Um, a lot of good stuff. Good networking. Uh, and we've got a Baker Hughes event coming up. They're talking about doing a rig tour, so a lot of good stuff coming up at the APIYP. So uh, we'll link to that in the show notes for you guys. But, uh, yeah, man, went to that. I actually woke up Wednesday morning, and I had uh, something I had to do, and I looked at my wife. I said, oh, no, today's Texas Energy Day. Completely forgot about it. I had planned on going to Austin, but uh, <laughs> missed that. So uh, sorry to the folks there. I had planned on being there. Just I don't know what happened. Just completely uh famboozled that one but uh building that man good week just busy 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 yeah man uh, and you mentioned that apiyp is going to be uh april 20th we'll, we'll put that in the show notes right the date for that that yeah, event. i think it's april 27th but i'll double check and, and we'll get in the show notes okay okay perfect all right well before we jump in uh as always i wanted to remind you if uh, you're anyone you know uh interested in looking at some different job opportunities go to globalenergymedia.com slash jobs uh, I checked it just a few minutes ago. We have 19 jobs that are available, ranging from Texas, Denver, Colorado, all the way to Dubai. Uh, so lots of lots of cool jobs posted there. Again, that's globalenergymedia.com slash jobs. Uh, if you have any questions, uh, you want to find out more about any of those, just go to globalenergymedia.com. Reach out to uh, either Ryan or myself, and uh, we'll help you uh, any way we can. Yeah, and hey, Josh, let me jump in real quick. The job in Dubai, I believe, it's the same one from uh, I looked at the other day. If you go to my other podcast, the Global Energy Leaders Podcast, uh, we interviewed um, Dark Matter about energy security, and so that's what that job is. It's fascinating technology they have there, and so uh, if you're interested in Dubai, interested in you know energy energy security, internet stuff like that, then maybe a job for you. So I just want to throw that out there. If you if you're going if you get there and go, what's going on in Dubai? Global Energy Leaders Podcast, um, and you can see it. I think it's around episode eight, nine, somewhere in there. We'll link to that in the show notes as well for people. Awesome, awesome. All right. Well, uh, Ryan, we got a couple of a uh, couple of articles about the Kinder Morgan, a four hundred thirty mile Permian pipeline that I, that I want to jump into. Uh, one of them is Jordan Bloom. Um, he posted this March twenty second, twenty seventeen, and the other one is Rod Drusen. Um, and he his was posted March 23rd. Uh, they have some pretty cool information about the uh, the new pipeline Oregon is, is about to begin begin on. It's 430 miles, and it's going to be carrying gas to the Texas uh, Gulf Coast. They're planning to possibly, after the refining export, it to take it to uh, to Mexico. 
Uh, Ryan, did, did uh, have you have you felt any of the effects of that? Well, you know, I think Josh, when I was kind of looking at these articles, the first takeaway is is that I need to get more business development folks down in Corpus Christi because there is all kinds of stuff. We talked about the Epic uh-huh. a few weeks ago, and there's just a lot going on going on in that area, and that means there's, there's going to be a lot more to come. And so, you know, if you're if you're looking to invest somewhere, obviously the Permian we talk about every week is a good spot to invest, but Corpus Christi. With what's going on there, there's going to be a lot more terminals and things that will be built out over the next few years. And so really exciting to see what's going on way down there in South Texas. Uh, well, at least for me, South Texas. Um, you can actually go. Texas is so big, you know, you can keep on going. But, <laughs> but you know, still still a good ways down there. Also, I'm, I'm curious to see, as we talked about last week before, we keep seeing this over and over again. You know, as Mexico, their energy revolution is going on and their energy policy is being developed, we're starting to see more and more people saying, okay, we're going to build lines, we're going to ship stuff to Mexico, there's a demand there. And Mexico is still trying to figure their way out over what they're going to do over the next three to four years. I talked to someone the other day, and they're like, well, you know, it's, it's very active down here, but the policies on how they're going to, you know, what, what rights do companies have as far as private companies go, how do they work out deals with Pemex and stuff like that, they're still trying to figure some of that stuff out. But you are seeing that this is really spurring the economy. And the other thing, the big takeaway here is, from Kinder Morgan's standpoint, they're in open season, I think it said to April 20th. So if they get these commitments, then that means that they're going to go forward with this line. And so this would be a long-term deal. I think it you know, it goes to construction 2019, I think was in-service date. So if you can get on this project, you know, you, you've, you've got a job. You know, as we know, long transmission lines, they kind of go up and down depending on the phase they're in. But this would be a long-term potential project for folks. And so a, a lot of good a lot of good stuff here. Exciting to see. And also, I believe, Josh, that they're going to ship some of this over to Houston as well for some uh, petrochemical refinery, if I remember correctly. So a lot a lot of exciting stuff that's going to go on here with uh, with this line. Yeah, I, and a couple of things I found interesting um, was uh, it, it mentions everyone that permanent drilling for oil, and most of the wells that are drilled also produce associated natural gas liquids. So uh, it says that uh, extra gas is why producers, they don't need to drill specifically for gas in West Texas. It's kind of like a byproduct of the oil drilling, and there's so much of it that, that they're trying to opportunity. So that uh, it's kind of what the purpose of the, of the pipeline. And uh, Ron, you mentioned the, uh, the, the, the energy transformation is happening in Mexico. Mexico, and it mentions that they're increasingly relying on the Texas shale gas for electricity generation. So they're currently relying a lot uh, on Texas now for their electricity generation. Um, any idea if, if they have any independent um, you know, Mexican entrepreneurs that are trying to maybe develop some things so that they wouldn't be so reliant on the U.S.? Well, yeah, uh, there's a lot going on. Uh, a lot of the big companies you're seeing. So what, what happens is you know, state-owned, um, national-owned oil companies, as it's called. Um, so you've got Pemex, and there's, there's another one, I can't think of it, so it's my mind right now. But uh, Mexico, just like everywhere else in the world for the most part, they have these large national-owned oil companies. And so they kind of played some, I don't, I don't know the exact numbers, but I can tell you basically what happened. Um, they kind of gambled on oil for a, for a while. And now, now oil is kind of, you know, obviously, as we know, it's kind of fallen off the map. And so, um, especially the last two years. And so they need natural gas. And they got a lot of natural gas. And so what they've done is, is they've opened up their borders for outside companies to come in and to invest. So you have not only Mexican entrepreneurs, you have people from around the world. And I'm not talking small people. You're talking big, big boys. Kinder Morgan and some of these other guys are going down there and they're building pipelines along uh, uh, as well as smaller companies. And so what you're going to see is that Mexico, over the next few years, they're really going to change the landscape, not only as 
you know, pertaining to Mexican energy, but international energy, because I think what you're going to see is, you know, maybe someone like South Africa or Nigeria or Venezuela, they're going to sit back and they're going to watch what Mexico does. And they're going to see that these American companies are going to come in, they're going to invest, you know, billions and billions of dollars to build out Mexican infrastructure. And it's going to create jobs, it's going to create prosperity, it's going to create, you know, education opportunities. And they're going to go, okay, well, maybe we should, you know, revamp our national oil policy here and allow for more outside investment to come in. Um, so I think that the Mexico stuff, one of the angles that I'm curious to track over these next three to five years is how does it impact the rest of the world? Uh, but as far as what's going on there, a lot of activities going on. But again, the policy is still, I think it's uh, three years old now, four years old, I can't remember. But it's you know it's still relatively new, and so I talked to someone that that works down there, um, an American company working down there, and they were saying that you know we're, we're making a lot of deals, we're building pipelines, but we're still trying to figure out exactly where all of this is going to work out as far as contracts and money and long term agreements go. One other thing, Josh, is that um, you know when you look at you know this natural gas you mentioned, um, you know we're one of the things that we're going to see here is you know that that we're exporting natural LNG, we're going to export more and more LNG, and so that's that's a big thing because. Yeah, it is a byproduct um, of, of these Permian wells, but the LNG business, you know, it's really picking up. And with the sh- with the with the sulfur emissions regulations that are coming down in 2020, this could be very profitable and a long term solution to get LNG out out the door and to sell it on a global market. So uh, I'm in, I'm meant to bring that up as well. Yeah, I was uh, I, I was taking a look at that, and uh, uh, the, LN- it, the LNG seems to I keep seeing it uh, pop up here and there, and it seems like. Uh, it seems like something that is definitely on the rise, and um, I was going to mention that to you, but you've already you've already hit on it. Um, one more thing out of uh, from Rod Drusen, uh, his his article. He uh, he actually interviewed a Kinder Morgan spokeswoman, M- Melissa Ruse, and uh, and she said, uh, as far as fossil fuels go, it's clean, efficient, abundant, it's a great source for powering in, uh, power generation. And, uh, and she mentioned that they plan to break ground in the first half of 2018. So she gave a slightly different, uh, slightly different date, uh, just a little bit more information in this one. And uh, just for a little perspective, Kinder Morgan operates about 70,000 miles of natural gas pipelines throughout North America. All right, Ryan, well, moving on to the next article. Uh, this was actually a, just a lot of information, really cool article by Matt Egan, um, posted with uh, the Texas oil field is messing with OPEC. We, we touched on this um, last week. This one goes into a lot of detail about uh, the way the OPEC is trying to wrestle with the, basically the Permian boom that's happening in Texas right now. Um, Ryan, we talked last week that OPEC is uh, – they give us a lot of trouble with all the regulations. And uh, right now, all of the, the boom that's going on in Texas is making it difficult for them to control uh, – the drilling and production of oil. Um, what is your take on the uh, the Texas and OPEC kind of controversy or their their struggle with one another? Yeah, I mean this is this is a good article. I think it, it touches on a lot of different things that are important. But at the end of the day, um, you know it, the the battle it's not the Permian versus OPEC because the Permian isn't an entity. OPEC is an entity, um, and so when you say it's the Permian versus OPEC, well, okay. Yeah, I get what he's saying there. The only thing I would say is that, okay, well, you know, how many producers are inside the Permian? And so OPEC, you know, can't they can, depending on what they do, they can play a strategic play that would hurt certain producers inside of the Permian, right? Um, on the flip side, Permian producers, 
you know, they're not necessarily aligned on trying to tackle OPEC. They're just trying to make their money. And so, you know, it's kind of a, it's kind of a weird dynamic where we say, well, it's this versus this. Um, because, the, you know, on one side you have OPEC, and we can debate on how much OPEC is actually aligned now versus how much they're kind of – you're starting to see them unravel. They are unraveling, but, you know, where they're in that process is up for debate. Um, and so I, I'm a little I'm a little leery to sit back and say, well, OPEC is looking at the Permian um, because if, the, if OPEC is smart, and they are, they could look at it and say, okay, well, we know that these producers inside the Permian – they have X amount of reserves. They have X amount of cash. Um, you know, if we go drill, they can only last so long. And so, right. um, now you're talking about Exxon and stuff like that. That's a little bit different. But but not everyone's Exxon. Not everyone's Marathon. You know, not everyone's you know these large companies. So I, I think that it's a little bit presumptuous to say that it's the Permian versus OPEC. I do get what he's getting at in general. The production from the Permian is causing problems potentially for OPEC. However, I think it's a little bit more of a um, in-depth debate over how this would actually plan, play out on the, uh, on the ground level, if you will. Okay. okay. Well, uh, Matt, he has an interesting comment here where he mentions the, the latest resurgence of U.S. shale oil output from the basin caught OPEC off guard, and its strength even prompted U.S. government experts to recently predict that American oil production could soar to a new record by 2018. So the, the production is, is not necessarily um, they're at odds with one another. It's just saying uh, – or Right here, Matt saying that the the resurgence of U.S. shale it's off guard. It's kind of unexpected. I mean, the, the Permian explosion has been a little bit more than anyone ever anticipated, I think. And um, and it, I, I guess it's creating some some difficulties for them to kind of balance everything out. And as a matter of fact, he gets gets into that um, right now. They're they're estimating that the Permian could possibly uh, overtake the the huge basin in Saudi Arabia, which uh, produces five million barrels a day. Uh, but the guy, uh, Matt, he asked, is that something that we need to happen? I mean, if the, if the Permian gets that big uh, and they start producing that much oil, um, is that just going to cause the oversupply problem to happen again and, and cause, you know, the, you know, the big oil boom, you know, in the last decade is what created the over, oversupply, which created, you know, the, the havoc that we've seen in the last two years where all these jobs were lost and, uh, so well, I guess the question is, with the oversupply where it's at and the Permian exploding the way that it is, um, do we see a danger of possibly overproducing again? Yeah, I mean, I think we talked about this last week, you know, is that, there, you know, it, it's it's for so long our politicians have ta- have talked about getting off of foreign oil, getting off of foreign oil, getting off of foreign oil. And I, I, I just think that that's just politician talk, but the American public has kind of bought into it. And so here's kind of the issue is – Last week we said, okay, well, the, the storage is rising, but that's because these certain producers from OPEC nations ramped up production before the freeze to kind of make up the money they would lose. Okay, and so we're seeing that come into storage now. Okay, so we, we have that effect that's going on. To balance that out, we don't actually know what all the producers are going to do. We have some ideas here in the U.S., but we don't we don't really know. And then you take OPEC and you say, well, we're not really sure. We know what they say they're going to do, but they're not always going to do that. We know that. And you know, so until the oil actually comes into storage, we're not really sure exactly what's going on there. Now, as far as the Permian exceeding you know, um, Saudi Arabia and 5 million barrels a day and all that, you know, th- there's no need for that right now. And that would be kind of my comment is there's, there's, there's really no need for that. If it happens, well, then the market will adjust. And so, if 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 um, if the Permian overtakes the Saudi the Saudis in production, and the storage is full, well, we know what's going to happen. The prices are going to you know they're going to plummet. If they overtake the Saudis in production and the supply is drained, 
well, that's because, you know, the prices will be really high. And so it's really going to depend on when this hits in relation to the supply and the projection of where the supply will be, you know, in three, six, nine months. Um, and so I've kind of said, and I'll say it again, I don't think until we get to June, we're really going to know what's going to happen. I think that a lot of people have said we're, you know, the market's, you know, stable for the next three to five years. Maybe it is. I just think that until we get to June, we're really not going to know um, if it's going to be stable or not. So that's, that's still my opinion. A lot of good stuff in this article, but um, I'm still sticking with my prediction that until we get to June, maybe July, we're really not going to know, um, not going to have enough information to know really what's going to happen. Yeah, and he, he, uh, he kind of seconds that. I mean, he doesn't give the month of June, but he says for now the oil marketers remain nervous. Crude prices have tumbled 9% in two weeks and be concerns about resurgent U.S. supply panic. They're just, they're just nervous. They're just kind of they're hesitating. They're uh, postponing judgment uh, and, until they see kind of how this, how this balances and plays out. Uh, one more thing, Ron, uh, with with Exxon Mobil, um, you know, it mentions uh, the article mentions that you know they're taking notice of what's happened in the Permian, and uh, they it says they they spent 5.6 billion earlier this year to purchase some land in the Permian, and uh, I believe we covered that. Uh, but anyway, they they doubled their Permian assets this year from 2010, and um, and you know they recognize that right now the Permian Basin is really the premier basin really in the world. Uh, so they're about to start ramping up some production in the Permian, according to, to Matt Egan. And uh, it's, it's, it's definitely exciting, but uh, I, I think, I think most of these guys are probably, most of these companies are going to, at least they, I think they should um, temper their projects so that they can kind of draw them out over a long-term basis rather than just jumping in and uh, just crushing the oil production, you know, in the next couple of months. Right. And Exxon, you'd imagine they're so large that they're, that they're going to be able to do that. The article I would like to see, you know, if you're talking about, you know, something versus something is how is Exxon's position or these large positions in the Permian versus the smaller positions. And so, you know, cause Exxon has a lot of capital. They can go through, or, you know, they've, they've gone through this thing. They've been doing it forever. So they can go through the ups and downs. They understand the metrics. Um, so that's really the more interesting debate is how much, you know, can the, the quote unquote little guy survive, you know, for the next two or three years um, as we go through what I, what I think could be rocky or even stable times versus what Exxon's going to do there because now they have such a large position. So, you know, Exxon can slow play it where a small producer may need to, you know, kind of fast play it, which could ultimately hurt himself. So that's kind of more interesting to me than us versus OPEC is inside the Permian, the dynamics of all these different companies, and they all have their own agendas. And, you know, some are short-term, some are long-term. So that I would love to see someone kind of break down some of that information as well. Yeah, that would be great. That would be great. Kind of the big guys that have the ability to play the long game, and then uh, some of the guys. That, I mean, they gotta they gotta make the money or sell. So yeah, no one's trying um, to be not, not trying to say anybody's trying to be malicious. It's just saying that you know two different company strategies. Well, you know they could they're going to impact each other because they are competing in in that sense. So it would be interesting. Yeah, that would be that would be fascinating. Well, Ryan, moving on uh, to the third article uh, before we. Jump in. These last two articles are more of uh, kind of some litigations that are going on in and around. Uh, uh, one's going to be in Dallas. Um, there's been a couple of things in the news about um, and uh, bills they're trying to pass in the government. So this first one is uh, it was posted March 20th uh, by Max Baker, and it is a, about a bill that is trying to allow cities to ban drilling near schools. Um, Pretty interesting article. Um, got a, a lot of stuff in here that I disagree with, obviously, but uh, just wanted to kind of go over a few things with it. The House Bill 343 
Uh, it would allow cities to prevent a new oil or gas well from being drilled 1500 uh, within 1500 feet from the property line of a school child school or child care facility and the facility has to have at least 100 students um, a couple of the comments they make throughout this article they know the importance of oil in texas but they're emphasizing the importance of child safety and um and they're, they're emphasizing that it's it's no secret that drilling for oil is not the safest thing to do and that t- technology should give us the ability to build these these drill these rigs and, and wells further away from uh from schools and other population um they mentioned that right now, currently, 326 oil and gas field facilities fall within these parameters that they've set. Uh, so fif- within 1,500 feet of a school or child care facility, there's 326 uh, field, fa- field facilities that are currently that close. Uh, Ryan, one of the questions I had, I mean, do we know of any instance where any school or children have ever been endangered by an oil well? I mean, I don't, I can't think of anything, uh, that would, uh, I mean, in the last 10 years, especially that has indicated that there's any danger in the oil well, uh, for any, anything around it. I mean, do you know of anything? Um, not off the top of my head. I'd have to do a little research on that. Um, you know, I, I think, I think, you know, Josh and, and, you know, we know each other, uh, know each other for a while now. And so I, I you, you know, my, my angle on this is really, it's more of, um, th- there's a lot of implications here for the oil and gas companies, for the schools, and for the government. And so you, you kind of have a battle where the cities are saying, hey, this is what we want. The state's coming in and saying, well, you know, you can't really determine that necessarily. And and the oil and gas companies are kind of lobbying for it. I, I would say this, is that um, it's a very complicated issue. And, I you know, the, the reporter, I think, does a good job here kind of laying out some of the stuff. But this is a very, very complicated issue. And I don't care what side of the debate you're on. We have to be careful when we, when we get into stuff like this and saying, well, they, they shouldn't be allowed to do it because it's a safety issue. And that may be very well true. Um, if you're talking about you know a, a gas well and they don't talk about H2S, but if some of these wells are drilling in H2S areas, then I would probably, I don't know, I'd get, we have to get a, you know, a safety guy in here to talk about how far H2S can go. But if you're talking about a well that's drilling H2S next to a school, I, w- I would probably be, you know, okay, we can't do that. Um, on the flip side, I would say that, you know, we probably need to look at it more of a case by case scenario. What exactly concerns are they? You know, in here we talked about um, air, you know, wheezing and stuff like that. And so it, it's it's one of these issues that I think is fascinating to sit back and to really have an honest discussion of what fears are there. And not not every well is equal. You know, some wells, like I talked about, if they have H two S they're drilling into, then you know that's a poisonous gas that can just you know kill people. <laughs> so we don't. You know, I would probably not want my my son going to school and there be an H two S well next door. Um, on the flip side, I don't want to say that all wells should always be banned because we're potentially afraid of potential implications. Um, the final point I'd make here is that if I was an oil and gas company, um, I, right now, especially when we, there's, you know, there, there's, it's kind of, it's kind of tough to say because you're, you don't know kind of uh, a leasing agreements there are in place here and all these factors. There's so many factors here that are in play. Um, you know, do they go buy all these leases and then now this regulation's coming in play? And if that's the case, well, you know, you're basically, you know, they have to drill within a certain amount of time and now you're saying they can't drill and they're trying to figure out what to do. They got to move these wells. There's so many factors. I would just say that I don't care if you're on the left, the right, the center. Issues like these, we really have to have a lot of discussion. There's a lot of implications. There's a lot of factors. And, and let's reserve judgment um, and, and, and not say, well, this is bad, therefore we ban it every time. Um, because 
there may be situations where it is acceptable. And I, I don't I don't want to sit back and say that you know this is a this is a good bill. It's a bad bill. I think that there's a lot of discussion, and I could sit here and go through scenario after scenario after scenario. And I would really have to spend a lot of mental energy to kind of figure out, okay, you know, would this be okay? Would it not be okay? And we, had, you know, there's a lot of experts we'd want to talk to. So I, I think it's a great article for people to go read. I think it's something we should consider, we should think about. Um, you're talking about who has the ultimate right to make the decision. No, no matter where this goes, there's probably going to be, uh, you know, going to the Supreme Court. You know, there's going to be trials and lawyers. And so there's a lot of stuff in this article if you just step back and go, okay, let's just kind of be objective here. Um, you know, obviously I'm pro oil and gas, but I, I want to be, you know, I want to think through all of these type of issues. Right, right. I, and I think I think you make a good point. Um, just uh, to piggyback on what you said about getting a safety guy out there, I think that the bill, if it would have been backed up, uh, um, it, one of the com- uh, complaints from one of the Todd Staples, president of the Texas Oil and Gas Association, his complaint was that HB 343 has zero scientific basis and does not acknowledge the wells' existing safety features or the fact that many structures are built uh, and and are safe. And I think if you were to get like a, a, a figure or a fact that says uh, if you drill for you know any type of poisonous gas, it's dangerous for up to X amount of feet or X amount of miles, then you have a, a, a scientific fact that is that you're that you're using to say this is endangering kids because this stuff is dangerous for up to up to this you know this radius. Well, then then you actually have something. What they're coming in and saying is it's more general. They don't give any specifics. They don't give any dangers. They don't. And I, th- I think what you're saying is, uh, is, is right. I mean, there needs to be a discussion. If there is a danger that we're putting these children into, we need to, we need to say what that danger is um, and, and actually think through it. Right. And, yeah. And I, I mean, I just, just to clarify, so you're, 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 you're there. That's what I'll clarify. So in case I'm not, I'm not misconstrued here, uh, but we're on the same page. And I would say that when you go to, when your children go to school, um, there's electrical wires that could spark and catch a fire, right? There's some, there's probably pipelines that are feeding it. You know, there's, there's all these things that could go wrong. Um, but there's regulations to ensure that they don't, okay? And so we send our children, we go to Walmart, we send our children to school. We do all these things with the presumption that the regulations are there to protect us. And and so when you go to oil and gas you know, well sites, there's same regulations there. They're probably more strict in a lot of cases, for me, and, and what I was making the comment about the H2S is, I would say that there are maybe some scenarios where I just, you know, I don't, I'm not an H2S expert as far as how far it can go and all that stuff. I just know that when we go to sites where there's H2S, you know, it's, it's a very serious deal. And, and just a quick story here, anybody who's had H2S training, you know how it goes. If you're drilling for a well and the H2S um, alarm goes off and you, you run. If your buddy falls down beside you, he's dead. You run. It's just deadly stuff. How far can it go before it dissipates in there? I have no idea. We need an expert to tell us that. That was just kind of an example of I could see a scenario where maybe if H2S um, could travel three, four, five hundred 500 feet, you know, again, I don't know. We need a good expert for that. Um, and it could kill people. Well, that may be something I go, oh, boy. The, alar- the, the alarm goes off because they have alarms, obviously. The alarm goes off, but you're trying to herd kids you know, from a deadly gas. That So uh, – and so my point I'm trying to make with the H2S example really is is that someone more qualified than me would have to weigh in on really what's the potential danger with H2S when you're drilling for oil or gas and you have an H2S well present. You know, what what kind of danger is there and what kind of safety measures? So that's that's really the takeaway is that we go to school already. Our kids go to school. There's stuff that could hurt or, or harm them there. We trust that all of that stuff is up to standard and code. The oil and gas um, wells are regulated you know very very tightly with with the same type of standards and codes and they are safe but 
there are probably some things I would want to go. I would need more information before I could make it, you know, an educated opinion on how close I would want a well to my house or to, you know, a um, a, a school. And that was just using H two S as an example. I don't, right, I right. can't think of any others, but H two S would be the first one that kind of comes to mind. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure there, are, I'm sure there are different dangers that are associated more so with one one type of rig or, or you know, uh, than than another. Well, Ryan, we have uh, we have one more article to to jump into. Nothing too exciting. Uh, I just thought it was interesting. Uh, this was posted March twenty third, twenty seventeen. Railroad Commission finds a company for not cleaning up oil and uh, wastewater spills. This was posted by Ryan Handy. Uh, it was a Dallas based oil and gas company that was fined more than a hundred thousand dollars on Tuesday. So this was three days ago after inspectors found that several spills of oil and toxic water had not been cleaned up after nearly two years. Uh, two spills, one of 10 barrels of oil and another of 285 barrels of wastewater were discovered in January 2016, and they were not reported by the commission. And so there was this lawsuit uh, to that company. Do you think this is something that happens more often than we realize, or do you think this is going to become a trend run with, uh, I guess, these regulations kind of up in their security measures? Well, I think the, the, the takeaway here was the company said that they had lost a guy, and so the, the reporting kind of got you know um, slipped the cracks. And they also said that they had hired a company to do the cleanup, and that that, that, that so for, so I'm sitting back here going, okay, I can see this being a problem where um, we've gone through you know massive layoffs, and you know there's paperwork that someone was doing that you just forget to do, and um, you've hired this vendor to go do it, and who was that vendor and did he do it? No one's gone out there to check it. So I could see there's, there could be a potential where there's a lot of things that have slipped through the cracks. Um, I'm not saying these guys did or didn't do what they're supposed to do. I'm just saying that that's, that's what they, the, the article says is that, Hey, we hired this company and we had this guy that got laid off. Ultimately it's the company's fault, right? You know, cause they didn't get it done. If, assume, assuming it's not done. We, we, we don't really know, but yeah, I can see where you can see a lot of these stories. Cause uh, one of the things that when you start cutting positions you know you don't realize the impact of what a particular employee does and even though he may say well i do this 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 and this well now you take those four tasks and you give it to someone else who already has four tasks now they've got eight tasks and they may not be equipped to do you know one of the four and so um, i can see there could be a lot more potential for stuff like this where it, it appears and forgiving the benefit of the doubt at least that the that the the, the, the old company thought they did the right thing they hired a contractor and they had a guy who was supposed to do the paperwork unfortunately had to let that guy go that's the crack and maybe the contractor didn't you know didn't actually do the job like he said um, so I kind of felt bad for him if, if what they're saying is true they kind of you know they're suffering like everyone else is and then boom they get hit with this fine it's like oh man. yeah it's like oh man so I'll be curious to see what really comes of this did the vendor not do his job um, but yeah I do I do foresee that you know that you will you will continue to see stuff like that because so many jobs are lost that you don't really know what all paperwork was being done, who had turned it in. You forget. You just kind of assume. You know, Josh has been doing this for us for ten years. Josh is gone now. You forget everything that Josh did for you. So yeah. that was kind of yeah. the big takeaway from that is, folks. If you let people off, make sure that you're you've documented exactly what they do, and then you know who's going to assume those new responsibilities. It's a great point. I, I didn't even think of uh, I didn't even think of it like that. Um, yeah, with all the layoffs, there's really no telling what, what loose ends are not being tied here. Right, uh, right, absolutely. Well, Ryan, uh, that's the last article. Uh, as always, the last thing we want to go over is the rig count uh, from Baker Hughes. And uh, just looking at it earlier this morning, the rig count was up uh, by 21. The U.S. total count was 789. Uh, Permian, I believe, was the same at 308. 
Eagleford added two, which uh, brought it up to 70. Uh, the state of Texas total was 398. Anything you want to add there, Ryan? No, no, that's uh, that's good stuff. And uh, guys, we appreciate you guys tuning in. You know, we're still working our way through it and trying to bring you guys the best content that we can. Um, one more final plug for the APIYP. We're gonna link to that in the show notes. Please, if you're in Houston, you know, join that group. It's twenty five bucks a year, and for twenty five bucks, you get the APIYP and the API Houston chapter. And so, you know, easy stuff there. Um, if you're in oil and gas, which if you listen to this podcast, you should be, go check out uh, the Global Energy Leaders podcast. My interview with Alex Epstein. And if you go to our website, Josh mentioned earlier, um, you know, there's jobs obviously there, but also when you go to the website, there should be an opt-in. And we're giving away a copy of Alex's book, and it's coming out, I think, middle of April is when that giveaway ends. And so you can go there, enter your email, and you'll be entered to win a chance of that book. If you're in oil and gas and you're going, okay, how do I deal with all these objections about fossil fuels are terrible? They're the worst. This is really the book for you. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, Alex is kind of the he's kind of the premier guy that that defends fossil fuels and really puts it in perspective how to think about these issues. So I would highly encourage that. Final thing, um, we haven't really talked about this on the show, but I'm going to kind of put it out there. If you're in Dallas, Fort Worth, and you're saying, okay, hey, look, I'm an oil and gas professional in Dallas, Fort Worth, young, old, it doesn't matter. I'm in discussions with a couple different people about some opportunities in DFW, um, some networking events and some organizations. And so reach out to me. Let me know, hey, I would be interested in some of this stuff. We'd love to hear from you if you're in DFW. Uh, we have some opportunities to really bring DFW. You know, it's just kind of a forgotten industry, but there's a lot of people in DFW who do oil and gas every day, you know, especially a lot of midstream companies. So if you're in DFW and you're going, I would like more networking, I'd like more training, I'd like more learning, reach out to me because we are in talks about bringing some groups to DFW that could really benefit your career. So, guys, as always, we appreciate you tuning in. And until next time, keep climbing. 